Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here for the Right Reasons, Us Weekly's Bachelor podcast. I am your host, Sarah Heron, and I am joined by the other, the real, the OG, the Bachelor Nation, Sarah Heron. I, I you know, I try to to be the bachelor Sarah Heron, but I think she really takes the cake. She's had the roses (laughs) handed to her. You may know her from season 17 of The Bachelor, seasons one and two of Bachelor in Paradise. It is the real Sarah Heron. Hi, Sarah. Hi. (laughs) Okay, we're both very real. We're both real, and it is very surreal to be talking to another Sarah Heron. It's so crazy. Um, For those who never put this together, Sarah spells Heron with two R's, and my family spells it with an A-R, but other than that, it's pronounced the same, It's we, we spell Sarah the same, and I know you and I have spoken about this, but very funny, one time Chris Harrison got our Instagrams mixed up, like this has caused confusion in Bachelor Nation. Totally. It, it confused me. I, I told you the other day, like wh- the first time I ever saw your name on an article, I was like, did I write this? Like I was like in a Black Mirror episode. I didn't understand what was happening. It's so bizarre and so fun. And we're going to circle back to some Bachelor stuff in a bit, but we are here to talk about something more important um, for a lot of reasons and something that I know means a lot to you and is very close to your heart. And that is your fertility journey and your support group and everything that um, is going on in your life in the mom sense of the word uh, of the world. Um, so obviously a lot to talk about, and I want you to you know guide this conversation a little bit as it's your journey, but um, if we can just start with where your fertility journey kind of started. Thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you for just opening the floor for me to be able to share about this. Um, to take it back, I guess, you know, about seven years ago now, I met my now fiance Dylan and we decided about three or four years into our relationship, you know, we hadn't, we hadn't gotten engaged yet, but we were pretty certain, you know, we're going to be together. We really want to start a family together. And we decided to try the good old fashioned way to get pregnant. And it was like peak pandemic. You know, I think that's what a lot of couples started <laughs> doing. And um, with 
after about six or seven months of trying, I was not getting pregnant. And so I went in for fertility testing and we learned that I had what's called diminished ovarian reserve. So essentially that just means, um, you know, my egg count and my, the reserve of my eggs is a little bit lower than someone, a woman my age. So um, basically we were recommended to start fertility treatments and IVF immediately if we wanted to continue trying to have a family. And so we kind of just dove headfirst into the IVF world and got started working with my amazing doctor, Dr. Amy. She's otherwise known as Egg Whisperer on Instagram. (laughs) She's worked with several Bachelor Nation women and um, she's been helping us grow our family. Um, So it's been about a two and a half year journey. Um, And last year, exactly a year ago, I was finally very successful in getting pregnant. And we had um, my first and only pregnancy ever with our son, Oliver, who we um, unfortunately lost when I was about 25 weeks pregnant. So that was, as you can imagine, the heart, I mean, the hardest thing I've ever been through, still going through it. Um, We're about six months, seven months out from losing our son. And every day is a new chapter in the grief and the processing of it. And I would say throughout this whole journey, um, the one thing that has just kept me going is the community of women who are in in the infertility jungle, so to speak, and just who are in it, you know, it's such a tribe. And there's an unspoken um, saying that infertility is the worst club with the best members. And mm. I've just been, yeah, motivated to to keep going because of the women in this group. That just gave me chills, that slogan there. Um, For you, it's so interesting coming from, you know, the bachelor world and how there's always talk now, especially in the last couple of years about like these bachelor influencers and being, getting up, making a career off of reality TV and which there's nothing wrong with, but on this side of it, it's obviously like so much deeper and so much more important and it has probably helped you reach such a wider audience. Mm -hmm. What is it like to kind of, be the face of something like this to a certain group of people or, you know, take from whenever you were posting or, you know, posting about travel or just keeping people in the loop about maybe more like fun, lighthearted topics to then transition into something like this. Does that question even make sense? But it's just kind of interesting to me. Well, what's, what's interesting is, you know, when I first went on Sean season 17, but I think it was like 2011 or something, Mm -hmm. Instagram had literally just come out that year. So there was no such thing as like going on to get followers or to get brand deals like that did not exist. I had a full-time job and, um, but what came out of that experience was actually women across the world who saw the first contestant or participant on this show who had a disability like they did. And so that really was the catalyst of my experience on The Bachelor into creating this platform, so to speak. Um, And so after I appeared on Bachelor in Paradise season one and three, I just saw this huge opportunity of like, wow, there's so many people out there, um, so many young women who have disabilities and there's a need for community and connection here. And that was when I decided to take the leap from my full-time job and I started a nonprofit that helped young women with disabilities 
discover self-esteem and Mm -hmm. confidence through outdoor recreation. And so the long story short, I'm kind of answering the long way around is um, it, it, it seems that like my purpose on The Bachelor has always been to unify and unite um, people through some of these shared hardships and shared life experiences. And in some ways, a long time for a long time, I felt like I was like, you know, now I'm the poster child of girls with disabilities. And now I'm the poster child of infertility. And you can look at it that way if you want. But really, I'm just viewing it as like, these are life things. These are just yeah. life things that a lot of women experience. And I have this platform and the opportunity to talk about it and share education about it. And it just happens to be a passion point for me. So I'm happy to, you know, live, let people live vicariously (laughs) through my struggles, I suppose, because I am an open book. And I'm, I, I hope that by sharing someone can gain some courage or education or confidence to I mean, either hike Mount Kilimanjaro or start IVF, whatever it is. I think it's safe to say that that is definitely happening. Um, <laughs> you can see the engagement on your just Instagram posts, obviously. Um, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, with IVF, and you kind of mentioned you were, you know, like eight or so months in of trying to get pregnant, decided maybe something might be wrong. Let's look into this. What is the amount of time that you've heard that people should be reaching out to a doctor? And is there anything that you learned in that really early stages of that process that you would want to share to someone who's maybe just now realizing, oh, I might have to do something like IVF or I might not, you know, get pregnant as easily as my friend down the street or whoever. Yeah, those are great questions. So typically, I think the rule of thumb is if you are 34 years or older, um, to give it a trying shot for about six months. And if you don't have luck naturally after six months to seek uh, fertility treatment from your doctor, if you don't want to go to your doctor, I mean, I'm, I'm a uh, ambassador for the modern fertility hormone mm-hmm. testing kit. And it is an amazing resource and excellent tool. Um, you can actually complete the fertility test at home, get the results and then share the results with your doctor rather than, you know, having to find a doctor, go right. in for testing, do all the lab work, which can cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. That's what I did. I mean, it was like upwards of $500. And so yeah. anyway, all I'm saying, if you are someone that's like, okay, I'm about 32, 33 years old. I don't know. Kids aren't in my future yet. Like the light bulb hasn't gone off for me Mm -hmm. yet. I don't know if it ever will, but maybe I want to preserve my fertility just in case. I would definitely recommend doing something like the modern fertility test or asking your OBGYN to complete the test for you just so you can have an understanding of where your your hormones and your fertility levels are today. Something that I will share, um, I considered freezing my eggs when I was about 32 years old because I was that person. I was like, I love my career. I love traveling. The kid instinct just hasn't clicked for me. I'm not sure if I want to be a mom, but I don't want to miss the opportunity. So I went to a doctor and I had my hormones tested. And the way she explained it to me was that everything was normal and within normal range. And so I was like, okay, well then I'm not going to freeze my eggs because everything sounds fine. And freezing your eggs is like 10 to $15,000 and that's a lot of money. So I chose not to do it. And then 
four years later, a lot changed. And I went back in and I had the same test completed and they were like, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not within normal range. And, um, and all I can say is now tens of thousands of dollars later, you know, creeping up on $75,000, of yeah. IVF later is a heck of a lot more expensive than the upfront cost could have been when I was 30. Wow. So I just, I, I share that to um, just kind of like be transparent with the realities that IVF is not inexpensive. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's something that you can do to be proactive earlier on, I say do it. I know a lot of a lot of people are um it's easier to kind of just like ignore it out of sight out of mind i'll deal with it later and i just urge you to know that it's not something you want to deal with later it's just yeah. not so i mean that makes a lot of sense obviously everything always feels like it can be a i'll figure this out down the line problem or what's in the cards is in the cards for me and that's a great outlook to some degree but if you do want to take matters into your own hands and you want to take this path obviously that's i mean says a lot the difference in the numbers and it's it's crazy how expensive this is in general yeah. and it's amazing what medicine can do and stuff but it it it's tough to you know have to wrap your head around numbers like that and decisions yeah. like that at mm -hmm. what is still a young age mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, uh, a lot, most insurance doesn't cover fertility treatments. A lot of em employers are starting to work plans in for their, their employees to have fertility, um, preservation covered, but it's just not, it's not universal. It's not really common for most insurance companies to cover it still. So I just, I think it's like the more, you know, the, the better prepared you can be. And I, I think it's worth kind of biting the bullet, ripping the bandaid off, taking the test, finding out what your hormone health is. And then you can be like, okay, I don't need to worry about it right now. Or maybe I should take these results to my doctor and see what their recommendation is. What was it like going through IVF for you? I know you guys did a few cycles before you found out you were pregnant. Um, I, I've just, from what I've even seen on Instagram, it, it obviously is, seems like a very taxing experience and you, you probably have to manage expectations and also physical symptoms. And, um, overall for you, like what were the main takeaways from IVF and what would you tell people who are maybe about to start or feeling anxious about starting and, and stuff like that? Yeah. Another great question. So I, I felt that the physical effects of it, I've done three cycles of IVF now, the physical aspects were not as scary or as mm -hmm. daunting as you've kind of been led to believe through TV and movies. Like it's, it's like, if you're okay with needles, it's a quick shot. It's mm -hmm. really not a big deal. You're only doing it for like 10 days. Um, but I think you nailed it on the head. It's, it's more so about managing expectations, um, making sure you have the right emotional support through the process. Um, whether that's, you know, if you have a partner or if you're choosing parenthood, um, single by choice, like ensuring that you have support team, whether it's friends, parents, therapist, um, because there is still so much for whatever reason, like shame and stigma around fertility treatments. And I think in the last couple of years, we're doing a really good job of kind of, you know, unveiling that and pulling it back a little bit and making it more um, normalized, but there, there's still just some generational shame. And so I think whatever you can do to surround yourself with the right people and the right support system to help you manage your expectations through the process, 
the better you're setting yourself up for success. It is so crazy because obviously there's so much truth to that. And women experience that they, you know, feel like they, their bodies are letting them down. They were quote unquote born to be able to do this, all those things that I feel like we've heard all these years, but like, in what world are we saying that it's the person's fault? Like it just, it's literally science and it's just so crazy. I know it's true and I know people feel it, but it's just kind of blows my mind that there's anything around that, that people wouldn't just be sympathetic or understanding to something. If someone wants something so bad and their body is not allowing them to do it in what world are we not saying, let's rally around you and figure out how we can help. Exactly. We actually had this exact same conversation in my support group this week because it's so common for all of us to feel like my body failed me, my body's broken, why can't it do the one simple thing that female bodies were created to do? And, um, you know, we just have to, it was interesting when we were like kind of looking one at one on one or like, oh, but I would never look at you, Sarah, and be like, you're a failure. Your body is a failure. I would never have that feeling about you. That's a feeling we have internally about ourselves. And so I think the more that we can just like have those conversations and break down the shame cycles that we get trapped in, um, the easier we can make it on ourselves. Yeah, I guess that's true for a lot of things. It's people always say like, what'd you say to your best friend, what you say to yourself Mm -hmm. about body image or about your life? And it's like, no, of course not. And it's, it's, it's such something to think about, like more often, I think we need to apply that in something like this, but even in a maybe more just like classic, like way you speak to yourself every day, because you would never talk to your friend that way. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned your support group. Um, Tell me a little bit about it. I know that there is obviously a lot of interest. Um, So explain to me a little bit about how you got this started and how it works and everything like that. Yeah. So when I first, you know, got diagnosed with the um, diminished ovarian reserve, I started joining Facebook groups. Like I would join any Facebook group I could find. And then over the two and a half years, it seemed my personal case started to get a little bit more nuanced and there was like intricacies like i developed or we discovered i had endometriosis and a blood clotting disorder and i came to find that there are facebook groups for everything (laughs) you can join a facebook support group for everything and um especially you know when i lost my son i joined some grieving grief support groups and they truly became my life raft in just a sea of despair. Uh, I would read the stories from other women in these groups and they would give me the push I needed to like get through the day or to change the framing of my perspective or to change my outlook. And I just wanted to create that for the hundreds of women that were messaging me on Instagram, like that they were going through the same thing. They were experiencing pregnancy loss or IVF complications. And I just wanted to create something that was not me trying to be an expert, not me trying to be a therapist. It's just a peer support group. And I tell the women in the group that it's just as much for me as it is them. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. truly like two weeks ago, I just broke down and cried in front of everyone. And, and they rallied around me and supported me. And And it's really beautiful. Like we all text each other now, Hey, thinking of you, you know, you've been on my mind this week. And, and that's all it really is, is just to provide support. And, and, um, I keep it small and intimate. So right now it's like program based. We're kind of doing five weeks at a time. So you get kind of brought in as a group of 15 for five weeks and you, 
develop really, really personal relationships in that five weeks. Um, and then of course there's a Facebook group that everyone has access to forever ongoing should they choose. But for those five weeks, we meet on zoom and we text and, um, if we all lived in the same city or state, I'm sure we'd get together in person, but right now we're all across the U S wow. in Canada, actually in Canada. Um, would you say, cause obviously when you go through something like losing your son, there's no like magic answer to anything. And there's no quote unquote getting over that. Like it's part of your life and it's something that you, you know, are going to carry with you always. And he will be a part of you forever. But is seeking support in people who have gone through something similar, the best piece of advice you would give into any sort of way of trying to, you know, have life, you know, go on or, you know, mm -hmm. just move forward in whatever way yeah. you possibly can? To me, yes, because uh, for me, connection is it's a pillar of my life. Like I have to have connection if I'm isolating and withdrawing and pulling myself away from my friends and family, then I'm really not nourishing myself. And so I think it can be tough to feel safe. It can be tough to open up and, and share this vulnerable side of your story. But if you can find the right community that allows you to be safe and, and be vulnerable, I think it's imperative that all women are able to like nourish that cup um, of having connection. Obviously, I can only imagine the kind of on your relationship. It probably uh, brings you two together to bond in, in an incredible way because you two are the only people who, you know, are connected to your son. But at the same time, the stressors of something like this would obviously probably be difficult. What is it like to kind of manage that as a, as a unit and as partners? Mm -hmm. So, um, I am very vocal about, I I'm in therapy once a week. I've been in therapy once a week for the last four years consistently. And when we lost Oliver, Dylan and I, my fiance, we both started seeing a grief counselor together. Um, and so we were like doubling up on <laughs> therapy and counseling, but seeing a grief specific counselor was really key because she just knew um, she knew how to walk that path with us a little bit, but the, the interesting thing about grief and the way men and women approach it and mother and father, it's, it's different, right? Like just fundamentally, biologically, it's going to be different. Dylan did not carry the child in his body. I did. I grew a biological connection with my son. And so the grieving is going to be different for me than it is him. And it's, it's pretty common for men or partners who are not, you know, carrying the baby to handle it, grieve faster, we could say. Right. Um, and it doesn't mean that Dylan was right or wrong. It's just his grief is different and mine is going to be different. And so I think it is really hard on relationships. It's really hard on couples. And so keeping that line of communication open and making sure that you're both still either in counseling or supporting yourself emotionally is, is really important because it can, it can make or break relationships. Like I, I won't sugarcoat it. Yeah. Um, so it's really important that both individuals seek the care that they need. That makes a lot of sense. Um, cause you're obviously going through it individually as a unit. Also, it's two very different things that you have to navigate yeah. when, how do you come to the part where you're ready to maybe 
do IVF again or explore these options again. Um, I know I saw you posted something about in July when you guys were going to, you tried to get quote unquote pregnant the old fashioned way again and managing those expectations again and kind of seeing like, could this happen? You read these stories, right? Where magically you stop trying and it happens. And I know that's real, but how much do you put into that? And then just in general, like how do you start having those conversations and decide what's our next step and when do we feel ready to take those steps? Yeah. Well, after experiencing pregnancy loss, regardless if it's an early term loss or a late loss, I think every woman is going to be different. You just have to, I know a, a lot of women, the easiest way to move on and grieve is to get pregnant again. And for a lot of women, they can't even imagine the idea of being pregnant again because the loss just feels too too real too close too all-consuming still and so i i do think it's different for everyone mm -hmm. um and when you do decide that it's time to try again um yeah managing those expe expectations is is hard because the thing about ivf is people think IVF equals baby right? and IVF only equals a possibility of a baby. And so when we lost Oliver, it, you know, I think some rationale right away was like, well, we'll just do IVF again and we'll do it in May and we'll be pregnant by June again and everything's going to be fine. And the reality is like, it's not guaranteed. It's never guaranteed. There's really only about a 70% chance with even like the best embryos of success from IVF. So mm -hmm man i mean it's it's a tough dance and i in some ways kind of regret trying to get pregnant the old-fashioned way because it stirred up just a lot of like emotional trauma that i maybe hadn't thought through all the way mm -hmm. and um yeah i don't know it's hard it's like you don't want to sit by and let another month go to waste and so you're like yeah we should be trying we should be proactive but then is it worth like spiraling if right. you're not emotionally prepared so and what is a question I have to ask myself like every month? <laughs> no, I'm sure. And that's obviously very heavy and very real. Um, what does, I mean, whichever you feel comfortable sharing the rest of like your year look like in that sense, what, what are you and Dylan planning for, hoping for what I know you guys are going on a fun trip soon, which will be great too. But like in the sense of fertility, like where do you go from here? So Something, I am someone that is just like, I need to have a plan. Mm -hmm. I cannot go a week without being like, but what's what's plan B, what's plan C, what's plan D? I need to know what's happening in December of this year in order for me to not just like sit and lose my mind. So um, we always have to have a plan. And currently where we stand is we have one, I'm going to use some IVF technical okay. terms here, which I'll explain for listeners who aren't familiar, but we have one euploid embryo, which a euploid embryo means it's been through genetic testing. It's been through chromosomal testing. It is considered your like golden star embryo. It should have the highest chance of implantation, the highest success rate. So we have one euploid embryo, and then we have two mosaic embryos and mosaic embryos are for lack of better explanation, embryos that have gone through chromosomal testing and tested that there's like indication for a chromosomal um, abnormality, but not enough to rule it out. So they're okay. kind of these wild card embryos where wow. you could take a chance and transfer it and it would 
if it's not viable, it would most likely end in either implantation failure or a miscarriage, but um, they're just, they're kind of wild cards. So it's personal, you know, every couple gets to decide how they feel about mosaic embryos. Um, And if you're someone that has been through pregnancy loss, like we have, then when it comes time to consider those embryos, like we'll probably consult with a counselor about it just to make sure like is taking a a risk on, uh, you know, a potentially risky embryo, something that we're emotionally prepared for. So there's a lot, Um, but our goal right now through the end of the year is we are going to do an embryo transfer in October. And if we do not have a successful pregnancy by the end of the year, we're talking with Dr. Amy about either doing another egg retrieval or considering egg donor or embryo donor. Okay. So that's our plan. We're going to use the last of our embryos. And then if we don't have a pregnancy by end of year, either kind of back to the drawing board or plan B, plan C, and so on. And so on. And does that, would that imply in some sense, potentially way down the line, a surrogate situation, or is that just to be implanted into you? If that's the right terminology, I'm sorry if it's not. Yeah, no, that's, that's correct. So um, fortunately, since I was able to successfully carry a pregnancy until Oliver, um, you know, like the loss of Oliver had nothing to do with my uterus or my ability to carry him. And so because of that, we feel confident that I would be able to carry another pregnancy uh, to term. So most likely surrogacy surrogacy is not necessary Mm -hmm. unless we reached a point where the fatigue, I was, if I'm just like, I can't do this to my body anymore, um, then we might consider a surrogate. But right now, um, my uterus is capable, so yeah, we'll probably keep giving it a shot. Oh, um, yeah, well, that's and good. Then, yeah, but it is expensive. I mean, there's surrogacy is a, a whole nother ballpark, yeah. and and then there's also always adoption and foster care. I mean, there are so many ways to start your family, and um, we're open to all of it, and we discuss all of it. Uh, so it's kind of just like we'll see where the wind blows us, but I think right now the best way to chew it off in bite-sized pieces is like, let's just see if we have a pregnancy by the end of the year. And if we don't, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And you have the resources and the people to talk it out and figure it out, which I think my biggest takeaway is that's the most important thing is setting yourself up with the support group, but also with the resources and the knowledge to look at something that's so emotional with as much logic as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it's like, I mean, you say resources and I have, we have resources, but like to be fully transparent, like we do not have endless financial resources. Right. No <laughs> one does. Most no people does. don't. Some people yeah. do, but some people most do. of us and don't. Some people can, you know, keep throwing spaghetti at the wall for 10 years, see what sticks. And that will not be the case for us. You know, we're kind of like the financial ceiling when we started all of this and we we're like, this is, this is where we'll go. And if we reach that ceiling, then pursue other options. And so that's just kind of, um, you know, where we are. <laughs> it's a whole other realistic part of it, right? Let alone all the emotional stuff. Because oh, you man. have to make the best decision for your family too. And yeah. while Dylan and I, we want to be parents, we also value each other and we value our relationship and our lifestyle. And we want to be able to travel and 
And um, part of bringing children into our lives is to be able to share that. So if we reach a point where we're like not able to enjoy our life and the life that we've created, you know, you kind of have to to see like what's your breaking point? Like how long do we want to keep, you know, fighting the fight? (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's kind of the side of it that also like a lot of people don't talk about is like, it's very, very hard. It's very taxing. Is there anything that has been an unexpected source of support for you that maybe people might not realize, like either something just that like something small that makes your day when maybe you get bad news or just something you've turned to that maybe surprised you? It might be a hard question, but. Hmm. Oh man, I'm sure there's a dozen things because going through this, you do have to cultivate your practice for gratitude in Mm -hmm. a way that you've never done before. (laughs) And I actually just watched that interview. I don't know if you saw the interview with Michael J. Fox, and I think it was like the Sunday show or Good Morning America or something, but CBS this morning or something. Yeah. Maybe you can link it or something. If you, if you guys are watching and you are listening and you haven't seen this interview, if it's eight minutes, it's amazing. And he just talks about how, um, he says with gratitude, optimism is sustainable. And that kind of just encompasses what this gratitude journey has been for me and not in a toxic, positive way. It's not about being like, it'll happen. Just have faith. Everything is, you know, in, in time works out. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's gratitude for the things that make your life whole, recognizing your wholeness, regardless if you're a mother or not, and just being grateful every day for what you do have. It it really does give you the energy to sustain, keep moving forward, sustain that optimism. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I do like that phrasing because there is something so much to be said for, would you call it toxic? Toxic positivity. Toxic positivity. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think definitely that the, as all the amazing stuff of social media you were saying, there is a little bit of that that goes around, right? Oh, yes, massive. It's it's a it's a whole thing. Um it's a big thing. Toxic positivity is it's really harmful because when someone is being vulnerable and they're sharing their their pain or their struggle with you and uh, it's a response that's like it's okay, everything happens the way it's supposed to happen or everything happens for a reason or just stay positive. It'll happen for you. That's what's called toxic positivity. And the reason it's harmful is because that's not always the case and it might not happen for you. It might not happen. And when you kind of brush someone off with like a toxic positive statement, it negates their experience as a human. It negates their feelings. It minimizes their experience. And while most time most of the time comments like that come from a well-intentioned place. People are just, they wanna help. They wanna alleviate your suffering. They want to alleviate pain. And so it does come from a good place, but I think we need to kind of have some awareness around the way we try to support people um, rather than, you know, just being like, it'll happen for you. Try to to ask your friend, how can I support you? Or would would it be helpful if I listened or if I offered advice right now? And those are much more supportive ways to encourage your friend or motivate, you know, your partner, your mom, your girlfriend, your wife, whoever 
to, to really just offer more of like a safe space rather than negating their feelings with it'll happen. It happens for everyone at the right time. Oh, I love that. That's, I feel like such good advice just in general to be a better person, friend, insert, whatever here, because there is so many of, you know, you only so many quote cards on Instagram that go by. And sometimes you just like want to scream and be like, I'm sick of this, like, and that's okay too. And it's, that's so interesting to me. I didn't know there was a word for it, but I'm glad I know now. What, when you think back to stepping out for Sean Lowe's season of The Bachelor, does it feel like a million years ago? Does part of it feel like you can get back there and be like, I can feel that I got a sense memory of this one date or this one thing, or does it feel like it wasn't even you? (laughs) It feels like a lifetime ago, but it is such a unique once in a lifetime experience it is like burned into your memory when you go through that so i remember it with precision but it feels like a million years ago at the same time when i say that and i I say bachelor memories what is the first thing that pops into up into your mind like where does your brain go oh my god i mean definitely limo night one is like iconic core memory um Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think I go to paradise, honestly, like I loved paradise. I think of the beach, I think of my friends that I made there and just the laugh. Yeah. I think I, I think I like mostly think of that, the beach around the bar where everyone hangs out and, um, I don't know. A lot of the like outfits kind of flashed. <laughs> yeah. <by. laughs> really like, what was I wearing? What was um, that? Yeah. So, but I mean, for me, I feel so, so fortunate because I had really great experiences on, Mm -hmm. on all. I mean, like, yeah, the whole thing with Chad, which if anyone even like that was horrible, but big picture, my experiences on the bachelor were amazing. I came out relatively unscathed and I feel like I lucked out. I had a great experience. I mean, obviously this franchise feels like it never ends. Um, and so in yeah. general, like The Bachelor and Bachelor, it feels like it's not going anywhere. But it's kind of interesting that Paradise has had this longevity too, even just because they tried in the the Bachelor pads of it all. And I know you were on the first season of Paradise and you came back for season three and we're going to be approaching season nine this fall when they've already filmed it. Does it does it surprise you that they are go on round nine of the show that you, cause you were there the first season, like you were, when they pitched this to you, were you like, this is ridiculous. Or were you like, let's go. This is, this is going to be great. Well, I think season one was kind of a flop. I don't know if it really did that well. Um, and then season two, when they moved it to Sailita or wherever they were, like that was like the Jade and Tanner mm-hmm. season, like that just like blew up. And so then I think everyone was like, oh, Paradise is awesome. <laughs> so I'm not surprised now mm-hmm. by the longevity. People love Paradise, myself yeah. included. I almost love Paradise more than I do. Normal. Yeah. It's just so, so good. There's so many places to look. The so original good. show, it's classic. And I know the people change, but because nothing else changes, it's very hard sometimes to not yeah. feel like you've, to quote Taylor Swift, I've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending. And yeah. on Paradise, we've just got so much thrown out that it's like at least one quote unquote storyline or couple or outfit is intriguing you. Like there's a lot totally. more to look at. <laughs> totally. It's so good. It's so good. Are we getting it this year? Yeah. So okay. uh, the Golden Bachelor will be airing on Mondays and Bachelor in Paradise will be airing on Tuesdays. So the oh writer strike is giving Bachelor Nation a, quite a gift. <laughs> so I have to make a, I have to address something about mm-hmm. the Golden Bachelor. Yes. I nominated my dad. You did? Yes. And he got through like first round of casting or whatever. And, but this was like, 
Remember when they started advertising? Yeah, for like, like four years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he never got the call back and now it's airing and I'm a little, I'm a little bummed out because I oh thought my, my dad was going to be the golden bachelor. Oh my God. Was your dad like game or was he like, what are oh, you yeah. doing? Oh yeah. No, like still. And actually, as a matter of fact, this most recent April Fool's Day, he got me so good because he was like, he said something about like, I like they, I just got my last callback or something. He was like too specific. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? You're going to be the bachelor. And he was like, April fools. But oh um, I, yeah, he would have done it for sure. That is, I feel like, I mean, nothing against golden bachelor Gary. I'm sure he's great. We haven't good. We have to give him a chance. And I'm sure it must've been very interesting for them to cast that show, but I really thought they were going to maybe go with a tie to the franchise. And there's all these rumors that Matt James mom might be a contestant and he didn't really deny them when I asked him. So I kind of think there must be something to that, but I don't know who knows with, with what's going on there. Cause they think they just started filming like literally last week. Um, but it would have made sense to me for them to have a bachelor connection, you know, introduce their parent totally. or someone in their life to be totally. the golden bachelor. I mean, there's got to be lots of single parents amongst all of us. So. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it would be funny too. Cause then it could be like, I come in and coach my dad, yes. but I guess they weren't into it. Maybe season two. I have a feeling they're yeah. putting a lot of eggs in this golden bachelor basket. And I do think as unfortunate as the writer strike is for scripted television, it's going to give this franchise a moment to really try to like capitalize. Totally. And if it does well, I think we got a campaign your dad for the second senior bachelor, golden bachelor. Yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that so much. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you about another reality show called Vanderpump Rules. Cause if you follow Sarah on Instagram, you know, in addition to everything she's got going on in her personal life, she spent, she spent a little time at Sir and you have dived you dove into the Vanderpump world. Was this Scandaval motivated? When did you start? Where are we at the journey? It was Scandaval motivated for (laughs) sure, because that actually happened like right around the time I lost my son. And so on Instagram, I had to like unfollow all the pregnancy accounts, all Mm -hmm. the pregnant people that I knew. And, and then all of a sudden, like my explore page was suddenly filled with Scandaval stuff. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. I started following along and I was like, okay, I think I need to start from season one. So I started in March. Wow. Yeah. March or April. And I'm finally on season 10. You're on season 10. I mean, talk about a good distraction or a good way to just dive into something. Endless material from those kids. Endless. I'm so obsessed. I'm so obsessed. I'm like, I have very big feelings about Mm -hmm. being on season 10 because part of me is like, I'm so excited to finally be here to see what went down. And then I'm also really sad that I'm like nearing the end. Mm -hmm. And I'm also very angry just about like the, the what you know is going to happen when has transpired. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like disappointed by just the development of it. Like I loved it in the beginning when they were all like poor mm-hmm. and like <laughs> and thirsty and thirsty and lived in these like horrible apartments in LA and now they're like driving Range Rovers and have restaurants and it's like less relatable you know yeah, and so totally. I don't really like that but I still love the show so much I know those early seasons really are like gold and you can so tell good. people can say what they want about certain reality shows what's produced what's scripted they genuinely just struck gold by or Lisa Vanderpump just had a knack for mess because those connections and relationships are very real and that first season like nothing had aired yet like they are just as like that really was happening at this restaurant oh. which is so insane to think I mean they really lucked out because they're such good personalities. Mm -hmm. They're so funny. They're so animated. I'm like, 
it's wild. And, you know, I, I obviously wasn't watching in real time. So I know like Stassi and mm -hmm. Jax and everyone got fired and for good reason. But like when you watch back on that first season, you're like, yeah, you know, there was no filter. There no. Was no filter there. <laughs> there really wasn't. What was it like watching it knowing? Obviously you, you had like the scandal, you knew the, you knew the, yeah. you didn't know the players necessarily, but you knew the story and it was everywhere. Knowing when you started watching like Tom and Ariana get together, like how was I, cause I had been watching and I, I, I don't remember when I started watching live, but it's been a long time. So, but even rewatching it, it's like so mm -hmm. creepy, but watching it for the first time, are you like, in what world is this going to be the guy who does what I think? And then when Raquel enters, are you just like mind blown watching it all and like back for the first time blown. i'm mind blown the only thing that i'm not like so surprised about is it seems like tom and ariana like i think it was even in like season seven or six like they that was when they admittedly were like talking about that they weren't having sex anymore they're really right. not in it like their relationship was clearly in a taking a turn mm -hmm. and so like th that was a little bit of writing on the wall i was like i just don't know if they're really connecting anymore but what is more surprising is that all the way up until season nine season finale like Raquel is engaged to James it's and so, so I'm crazy. like watching this I'm like how does it possibly change so drastically because in that amount of time like Raquel and Tom must have already had a had a something they mm -hmm. must have had a connection behind both of their partners backs in season nine because otherwise You're there's just there's no way it came came about that fast. You're going to learn so much more and you're going to be loving season 10. It's so crazy. And especially when you realize the timeline of what was air, like the way they had this gold and then didn't even realize that some of it was true. Cause it's like, it's, it's so, it's so wild. And it's such an interesting experiment of how to watch reality TV when you know certain things oh, yeah. and you go back and you can pick up on it. And even when Scandal broke in March and they had all these episodes in the can, they claim they were going to air them this way anyway. And you're like, in what world was this like open secret speaking to what you're saying of like this connection behind their partner's backs like how did people miss it and the people who didn't miss it how did they not like really push it harder because it's so crazy but it's it's hindsight's 2020 right yeah yeah i don't know but so you're saying that they when scandal broke out mm -hmm. in pub march yeah the episodes had already been aired so when it broke in March, it already been recorded. They'd already been filmed. They always film in the summer, and it had just started. Like Vanderpump Rules had just premiered, probably like five or six episodes into the season, and they the last episode of the season is when they pick the cameras back up in March, and like you you document the aftermath, and then you go into the reunion, which also filmed in March when emotions are quite high. Um, but the majority of the season, that huge bulk, with the exception of those last episodes of the reunion and the last episode, were already filmed, and the production company and anyone who like questioned whether this was there's something happening with Tom and Raquel, they fooled everyone and they got them enough to be like, no, it's not true. Cause they explore it a little bit. And it's like, oh, this is ridiculous. And when you watch, especially Raquel, some of the ways she treats Ariana and you know, in the back of your mind that she was sleeping with Tom, some of the things she says, it's just mind blowing. And then, mm. it, so it's really interesting to watch it like that. Cause that is how it like played out. Oh my, have you interviewed like most of the people who's your favorite i was at bravo the bravo con that they keep uh, mentioning uh -huh. when they will mention when raquel was wearing the tom tom sweatshirt uh -huh. i spoke to all of them that day and it was so crazy because the whole thing was about like schwartz and raquel making out at a wedding right. which obviously like who cares about that knowing what we know now but it was like the height of the affair and none of us knew obviously oh, God. um uh, they're all exactly what you think lala is 
wild in person, but, you know, gives it what you think. Ariana is incredibly kind. I watched Tom like get her water when he was speaking to me and like check on her. And it's just so crazy to know that he was with Raquel this whole time. I was Mm. at this performance where Sandoval is like looking at both Raquel and Ariana and jamming out and like singing to them. And it's just so dark when you think about like the friendship of it all and how she felt comfortable, like opening up to Raquel about stuff when this is what was happening. Um, Honestly, they're all exactly, exactly what you would want them to be. James Kennedy is a wild card. (laughs) Sheena is great television and also great in person like they are the same oh my god i would love to meet them it's you gotta get to BravoCon. yeah yeah, i would love to and for the housewives like yeah i would love to go but i feel like the vanderpump rules to me now is the way people get obsessed with Mm -hmm. the bachelor like i'm that way about vanderpump rules no and it's it's you gotta go to sir if you're ever you know just it's worth it to do those little things because sometimes they'll be there but even if they're not you're just like it's just a fun little way to to keep it going you know what i mean like it really is worth it to order those goat cheese balls and look around and be like (laughs) peter does work here peter i peter's always there from everything when i was there when other people have been there peter's always there and there is something real about this insane restaurant um so i recommend going wild okay (laughs) For sure. Next time I'm in LA, I'm going. Yes, go to Sir, and then hopefully something about her will be open, and you can get a sandwich for Ariana from Ariana and Katie. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I'll go support them. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me. Um, I know you're very busy, and I know that the work you're doing is—you don't need me to tell you that it's important. And I really do appreciate you taking time to speak with me and um, answering my questions and bearing with me if maybe I wasn't perfect with everything I asked or said. But um, it's really, really amazing to speak with you. Hey, you did great. It's, it's tough to navigate this whole science world. So I just appreciate the, like I said, the opportunity to open the floor and just, yeah, talk about this. And if anyone needs support or, you know, wants a little bit of a virtual hug, you can join my infertile circle. That's what I call it. And, um, yeah, there, I mean, there's, like I said, it's the worst club with the best members. And there is a whole nother universe of women who are going through this and who are there to support you. If, if you feel you need support or encouragement through your path to parenthood and beyond. And is your Instagram the best place to go to find out if there's a way to sign up for the support group and get involved? Yeah, you can go to my Instagram or you can just go to my website, Sarah Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N, sarahheron.com. But yeah, it's, it's on my Instagram. I mean, that's where you can find most of my links. Well, we will be following along with your journey over at Us Weekly and myself personally, obviously. And thank you again for taking time to speak with me. Of course. Thank you. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and an amazing trip that you get to go on. Soon. Thanks. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye, Sarah. Bye.